All right. We welcome you to uh, our continuation of a series on sexuality, human sexuality. Uh, it is a class that we have been moving our way through under the good guidance of Dr. Art Wright and Dr. Tracy Hartman for multiple weeks now. Tonight, we, we take a pretty big swing as we are shifting out of the biblical emphasis and starting to talk a little bit about biology. And as we do that, uh, we want to remind you with this shift uh, that at the very beginning of this journey, we made a commitment that we would move our way slowly and methodically and probably talk about this longer than we think we might even need to in hopes that it would help the church at large come to the place that when we need to talk about sex, we can talk about sex openly. And one of the hopes is, is that we will find ourselves in a place that we can do a better job equipping parents and mentors of children and youth um, to have these conversations at home as well as here in the church. And so as we start to make the turn tonight, things are going to be moving more and more in, in that direction. How do we facilitate this conversation with folks? But uh, we are indebted to Dr. Wright, who gets to sit down tonight. Tracy, his, the goal is to turn him red in the face every week. Uh, and uh, with that said, I wonder if you'll join me in thanking Dr. Hartman for coming to lead us. Tracy, welcome home. One of these days I'll get to stand up and teach again, and that'll be a wonderful day. Uh, until then, thank you for your patience as we move around. Um, let me tell you real quickly what we're going to talk about tonight, and then we will launch in. We're going to start with uh, just a basic refresher on female and male anatomy. We will put up some anatomically correct drawings, so be aware that those are coming. Uh, then we're going to talk about gender issues, and then how both nature and nurture influence how we as a culture think about those. So that's kind of where we're headed over the course of the next hour. Uh, but I want to begin with a question for you all tonight, and I want you to talk just for a minute around your tables. And that question is, where did you get your basic sex education? Was it at school? Was it at home? Was it a book or a video that a parent gave you? Was it from other kids? Was it from the internet? So take just a minute and talk at your table about where you got your primary sex education. Now talk about how awkward was that conversation for you and how prepared did you feel for the changes that came along with puberty? How prepared did you feel and how awkward were those conversations, uh, if you had them. All right, I'm going to draw us back together toward the front. I'm not going to have a share uh, for the sake of time tonight, but uh, raise your hand if that was an awkward conversation for you and your parents when uh, that happened. I see lots of hands up. Um, I heard somebody say we didn't have one. Um, not with your parents. So, um, so then you found out information in other places, much of which was probably incorrect, right? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, uh, <laughs> if we work from the premise that we've established from the beginning of this study that we are created in God's image and that our bodies are good and that sexuality is a gift, this should be a joyful conversation <laughs> that we have with our children, shouldn't it? But. Uh, often it is awkward. So tonight I just want to begin our whole conversation with this framing from Psalm 139. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and I know that very well. 
My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes held my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me when none of them as yet existed. This is good stuff, folks, and I hope that that's how we'll frame uh, the conversation as we get into it tonight. As we get started, I also want to say that the study of human sexuality has become a very interdisciplinary study, now a joint effort by biologists, physiologists, sociologists, anthropologists, and physicians. I am none of those. Uh, but I would add it should also include theologians, which I am. So uh, under that guise, we'll uh, launch into this bravely and boldly here. Um, but just like a fingerprint, your sexuality is your own. Uh, you will discover tonight that uh, just like many of the scriptural issues that we've been talking about, that the biology of this is very complex. And we're learning that more and more as researchers uh, learn more and more about our wonderful bodies. There are some very unique things about human sexuality. Uh, for animals, biology and instinct guide their sexual behaviors. However, God has given us the ability to move beyond just biology and instinct as human beings. Um, although much of our sexuality is determined by our genes, uh, and it is not a choice, environmental influences and how we are nurtured play a large and important role in shaping our human sexual behavior. So we're going to touch on several of those things uh, as we get uh, into the material tonight. So with that said, we're going to begin, as I said, with a very basic review of uh, basic human anatomy. Much of this will be familiar to you, but I think that you'll learn some new things tonight. Sterling and I certainly did when we went to the Sex and the City conference in January. So um, I'll be interested to hear when we're done tonight what was new to you uh, and what was, uh, what was familiar. Uh, for both uh, men and women, uh, our sexual and reproductive organs are called genitals or genitalia, which comes from the Latin word to beget. Uh, Art talked, has talked a lot as we've looked at scripture about uh, in the ancient Near East, folks thought about sex as primarily for procreation, and we see that even in this Latin word to beget, uh, to carry on uh, generations. So we see that in the Latin word here. So tonight we're going to begin with the ladies, so here's our first uh, anatomy picture. I was going to sit down front with a laser pointer. I couldn't find mine. Uh, if we need help, Art's volunteered to be Vanna White, so uh, so if we need him, he will come up to the front, but I think that these uh, are pretty um, self-explanatory. Uh, the top slide is a side view of uh, female human anatomy. The bottom uh, is a more as a front view of women's reproductive organs. Um, Women's reproductive organs are basically composed of her ovaries, her fallopian tubes, and her uterus. You can see those primarily in the bottom slide. Let's begin first uh, with the uterus. Um, normally, a woman's uterus is about the size of your fist, about three inches or so. During pregnancy, it expands to the size of a volleyball, and then afterwards goes back almost to its pre-shape. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? We talk about being fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, I think about twins, um, that's a pretty tight space in there um, as we work through that. So again, we, uh, we'll see as we talk about this tonight, the amazing things uh, that our bodies will do. Uh, on either side of the uterus, you see ovaries that are about the size of almonds uh, in their normal state. 
They produce estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone in small amounts for women that regulate our reproductive cycles. Uh, also, our, our hypothalamus, our pituitary gland, and our thyroid also produce uh, hormones and other substances that contribute uh, to that. When a woman is born, her ovaries already contain 500,000 oocytes, which become, uh, which are the seeds for eggs or ova that will come later. So girls, when we're born, 500,000 of those are already uh, in our ovaries, and two that are the size of walnuts. Um, about 400 of those will mature into eggs and be released during our reproductive years. Uh, when an egg is released from an ovary, it's viable or able to be fertilized for only about 24 hours um, before that egg disintegrates and is no longer viable. When an egg is released from the ovaries, it travels into the fallopian tubes. You see the tubes there that connect the ovaries into the uterus. Uh, if an egg is fertilized during that period, it will ideally travel down through the tubes and into the uterus where it will embed itself into the uterine wall and begin to develop uh, into a fetus. So uh, when a child is conceived, that conception normally happens in the fallopian tubes. Um, often you hear, or not often, fortunately, you hear about a woman having a tubal pregnancy. That means that that uh, fertilized egg has become embedded in the fallopian tubes instead of traveling down into the uterus where it's supposed to go. And that, of course, uh, causes uh, entopic pregnancies and all kinds of pain and uh, things that have to be uh, taken care of. But ideally, that fertilized egg will travel down to the uterus where it will live for nine months as it develops. There are actually two components to a woman's reproductive cycle. The first, which we just talked about briefly, is called the ovarian cycle. In the ovarian cycle, an egg develops every 21 to 40 days with an average of about 28 days is considered a normal cycle. Usually only one ovary releases an egg each month and they alternate back and forth. If a woman loses an ovary, the remaining one will uh, then generate an egg each month. The body can adapt uh, that way if it needs to. If two eggs happen to be released at one time and both are fertilized, uh, that results in fraternal or non-identical twins. Uh, each of those eggs will embed themselves in different places in the, uh, in the uterus, and they, those babies will develop independently of each other. If one fertilized egg divides into two, that's when you have identical twins, and those two embryos will develop together and share the same placenta. So that's the difference in identical and fraternal twins, which most of you know. Again, if an egg is not fertilized during that 24-hour window, it disintegrates, uh, triggering the second component of the women's reproductive cycle, which we call menstruation. Each month from puberty to menopause, uh, which is a span of about 35 to 40 years for most of us, uh, a woman's uterus prepares itself to receive a fertilized egg uh, each month. During this process, which usually occurs during the first two weeks of the ovarian cycle, the uterus becomes rich with blood that will nourish a fertilized egg. If the uterus does not receive that fertilized egg, it will then discharge the uterine lining. Typically, a woman's menstrual period lasts three to five days, although a week or more is not uncommon. Uh, typically, a woman's body will involuntarily discharge between two and five ounces of discharge uh, through the vagina or birth canal uh, every month that she remains fertile. Quick questions there. Again, we're going to do just a really brief uh, overview and then move on. All right. Gentlemen, it's your turn. 
I know much less about this, but we'll, uh, we'll go uh, together here. Um, men's reproductive organs are primarily made up of the penis and the scrotum. The word penis comes from the Latin word for tail, not nearly as uh, interesting, perhaps, as uh, the genitalia Latin base. Um, this is the organ through which both sperm and urine pass, although never at the same time. Just as you find a great deal of variation in breast size among women, relaxed penis size varies considerably among men. However, when erect, penises tend to be more uniform in size. So if you ever wondered uh, what's normal and what's uniform, um, there's the answer to your question. A man's scrotum holds the testes, which have two primary functions, hormone and sperm production. This was really fascinating to me when I learned of this. The scrotum holds an internal temperature of 93 degrees. So the scrotum will change position, ascending and descending in response to surrounding air or water temperature in order to maintain that thermostat reading, which is the optimum temperature for the jobs that it needs to do. The testes that are located inside the scrotum are each about the size of a large walnut, although they decrease in size and weight as you age, men. Uh, similar to breasts in women, testes are not usually symmetrical, and the left testes is generally lower than the right. So um, if you have noticed that in your own anatomy, that's perfectly typical. Um, here was the amazing thing I also learned. Each testes holds over a thousand seminiferous tubules that are each one to three feet long. If you laid them end to end, they would extend over several hundred yards. Again, I am reminded yet again of the miracles that are our bodies. Do you have any idea there was that much uh, piping in there, gentlemen? Um, the testes, of course, produce sperm, which is the male counterpart for the female egg. A sperm combines with substances that are produced in both the seminal vesicles and the prostate gland to make up semen, the fluid that is ejaculated from the penis during intercourse. The testes produce several hundred million sperm every single day. It takes about 20 days for sperm that's produced in the testes to travel through all those tubes uh, and uh, through the point of ejaculation. And then it takes a couple of more days after intercourse for sperm to travel from a woman's vagina up through her uterus and to the fallopian tubes again, where it will combine with an egg to create a fetus. While women are born with all of their eggs already intact, men only begin producing sperm in puberty, and then they produce it continually throughout most of their adult life. If sperm is not released through sexual activity, nocturnal emissions or wet dreams will occur. Interestingly enough, 90% of men and 40% of women have nocturnal orgasms. I didn't know that that was something that females experienced as well, but they do. The primary hormone that uh, the testes produce is testosterone. It's a steroid hormone. Although both men and women produce testosterone, men produce it, of course, in much greater strength. At puberty, it causes the following changes uh, in guys. Male sexual organs develop, facial and body hair grows, bone and muscle mass increase, and the voice deepens, often with some cracking and embarrassing uh, traits along the way. One of the questions that we collected on the first night when we asked you all uh, what your questions were, someone asked why women and men had such different sex drives. Sterling referred to it uh, last week. Testosterone, testosterone uh, which we've been talking about, which affects sex drive, peaks in men every two to four hours all day long, guys. So um, for women, it peaks once a month. 
uh, about day 15 of our cycle, which is about the time that we typically get pregnant, which is interesting uh, to think about. So uh, for those of you that have wondered about the extreme difference in our sex drives, it has a lot to do uh, with testosterone levels and how frequently those peak. Questions here before we continue on? Thank you. For no, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Well, many of you already know that it is the chromosome uh, in sperm that determines the biological sex of a child. Women always contribute the X chromosome. Uh, men contribute either an X or a Y chromosome. If there are two X chromosomes, the baby will be a girl. If there's an X and a Y, uh, it will be a boy. However, one of the things that Sterling and I learned when we attended the conference in January is that all human embryos are female until the seventh or eighth week of development. I had no idea about that uh, until earlier this year. You can see from this slide at the top the kind of genital components that um, are present very early uh, in the gestational period and how they begin to split into male and female anatomy, uh, kind of completing that transformation by the twelfth week. Um, again, this was new information. Uh, to me, and it, it helps explain a lot of what's happening uh, with transgender issues, and we'll get to that. And and what's that? And why and why boys have nipples? Because everybody uh, starts out as a female. So at about the seventh to eighth uh, week mark in gestational development, certain genetic and hormonal instructions signal the development of male sexual organs. Um, even into adulthood, men and women share many of the same anatomy. It has just shaped itself differently. So uh, I'll give you a moment just to look at this slide and you can kind of compare uh, how the different pieces of anatomy uh, sorted out for men and women, but they're, uh, but they're very similar um, in kind of how they function and in parts of our anatomy. In the questions that we collected, someone also asked that since we're all clearly born male or female, why are there issues with both sexual and gender orientation? If we're men or women, why do we have this problem or this condition? I, I don't want to label it a problem. It's a great question, and the answer is that quite often uh, our biological sex is not clear when we are born. Current research indicates that for many people, as many as one in 4,500 are born what's called intersex uh, with a congenital condition in which development of either chromosomes, gonadal, gonadal or anatomical sex is atypical. So one in 4,500 people are born neither male nor female very clearly. Uh, what causes this to happen? Well, during week seven or eight when that change usually begins, if the genetic or hormonal process that causes us to develop as males or females is disrupted, ambiguous genitals can develop. A person can be born with sex chromosomes, external genitals, or an internal reproductive system that make a person's sex unclear. Sometimes a doctor will decide when a child is born uh, which sex uh, he or she is. Sometimes there is surgery to clear up what may be ambiguous uh, genitals, um, sometimes early on, sometimes later. In the Dominican Republic, there's a rare group of individuals that provide a fascinating example of this. And I don't know, Julia, was it Anna or Julia? Anna Tuckweiler uh, sent us this article. Thank you, Anna. Um, in a small isolated village called Salinas, nearly one in 50 children 
spontaneously change from male to female when they hit puberty. At th that time, they develop a penis and testes. From female to male, did I say that wrong? Thank you, Art. They change from female to male when they hit puberty. Thank you for that important correction. Uh, they're affectionately known as huevadoses, which translates into penis at 12. It's kind of an, uh, an affectionate term in that village. These children are often raised as girls until their transformation begins at puberty because they look like girls. This physical change from female to male is so familiar in this village that it's often marked by a joyous celebration when it happens. I'm not sure um, what that says about how they feel about their women, but there is a joyous celebration when this happens. These children have an enzyme deficiency during fetal development that causes the male sex uh, organs to not form properly uh, in the womb. So it's not until puberty when these children experience a second surge of testosterone that the testes descend from inside the body and a penis grows. Similar cases have been uh, documented in Papua New Guinea where they are referred to as termins, which also means expected to become men. Uh, as you can imagine, these uh, two uh, villages have been studied extensively. A drug has been developed from the Dominican Republic group that's helping treat uh, prostate issues and other things because of the enzyme deficiency. They're, they're learning all kinds of things and, and developing some drugs as a result of these folks. Um, as you can imagine, these unique uh, cases have provided insight into human sexuality for us. Um, despite being brought up as girls for the majority of their lives, most of these young boys in the Dominican Republic identify strongly as heterosexuals and they express a disdain for feminine things. Uh, one boy named Johnny, who was originally called Felicita, said, I never liked to dress as a girl, and when they bought me toys for girls, I never bothered playing with them. When I saw a group of boys, I would stop to play ball with them. According to a Cornell researcher who studied this group in the 1970s, uh, she said these early gender identifications would suggest that the hormones present in the womb have more of an effect on our sexual orientation than our upbringing does because uh, these children were raised as girls but felt like boys um, and were not surprised when they became boys. Of course, gender issues affect a great number of other people throughout the world, not just folks that live in these two uh, villages. Uh, so as we have done in prior weeks, I'm gonna give you some basic definitions so we're kind of all uh, on the same page as we begin to talk about gender issues. So what is gender? Uh, gender is made up, people define it different ways. This is probably the most simple that I've seen it. We'll put up one that's a little bit more complex in a minute. A gender is made up of three parts. First of all, uh, our, our gender, what is our uh, sexual biology or our assigned gender is another way that it's described. This is the gender that's assigned to us based on our uh, anatomical appearance when we were born. Again, there are some issues with that sometimes, but that's how we, it's most commonly defined. Our gender uh, is made up of our bodies. How we dress and act, which is our gender expression. How do we, um, how do we express ourselves to the world? The term transgender is important to define here. Transgender is an umbrella term for those who do not conform to traditional notions of gender expression. So uh, a transgender person may be someone who's biologically a woman but does not feel that way and does not conform to kind of cultural norms uh, about gender. Gender identity is how we feel on the inside or a person's internal sense of being male or female. Some people will have 
uh, one gender anatomy, but they don't feel like they may have male anatomy, but they don't feel like a man. They feel like a woman, or they may have female anatomy, yet they feel uh, like a man. So uh, human sexuality experts now agree that instead of being binary, we're either men or women, uh, simply male and female, that gender and sexuality fall along a spectrum. Some actually put it on a circle or on a wheel. Um, the next slide that I have for you shows, um, shows it on a spectrum, but uh, please know that it goes uh, both ways. So at the top here, we'll just work through these uh, kind of quickly here. Uh, we have biological sex. Again, what the doctor assigns you at birth. Uh, we know now from our conversation you can either be male or female or in the middle there's intersex for people who are born uh, with uh, some gender variation there. Gender identity, as we mentioned a minute ago, how you feel uh, on the inside. Uh, do you feel male or female? Do you feel transgender? Um, you see under man there the letters FTM. Under woman you see the letters MTF. Those stand for male to female or female to male for transgender people who um, would prefer to be another gender and who often or may experience that kind of surgery. Gender expression, how do you present yourself to the world? Uh, do you do that as masculine or as feminine? Do you present yourself as androgynous, which is kind of uh, neither one, uh, or as non-binary, neither one nor the other? Gender presentation, how does the world see you? Do they see you as a man, as a woman, uh, or as transgendered? You see some other terms there. And then sexual orientation, who are you attracted to? Are you attracted to women, to men, to both, or to neither? Some people would identify themselves as bisexual. Some would identify uh, as asexual, meaning that they really don't feel attracted um, to either one. Again, these are all spectrum issues. Um, researchers are now, um, again, avoiding the term normal and abnormal, but are saying are typical and, and where do you fit on the spectrum? Uh, a chart like this would be used to help someone who is struggling with gender issues to identify how they feel uh, about themselves on each of these spectrums. And they recognize that once you, uh, if you were to put a mark there, that might mark might not always stay there. It might move as you, um, as you grow and develop and think about yourself uh, in those kind of ways. So many of our gender uh, characteristics are associated with our uh, genetics and our biological sex, but most of much of our gender is also rooted in culture. Um, our society begins to socialize children by gender before they are even born. Uh, ladies, how many of you or men have ever been to a gender reveal party? They're pretty popular these days where you announce the sex of your baby. Uh, how is that done? Almost always. Pink and blue. Uh, there's often a cake that's iced. You don't know till you cut it. Somebody has the secret and they take it to the baker and you make a blue or pink uh, cake here. This is a game you're, uh, you're supposed to pick up whether you think it's you know, a, a pink or blue and you, you help decide what you think the baby's going to be. It, it's a game that you play. So, so even before children are born, we begin to uh, socialize them with uh, colors that we associate with femininity and masculinity. Um, Beyond what children um, are supposed to wear, and we'll talk about that more uh, in just a minute, we socialize them on how they are uh, to behave. Do you remember the old little uh, nursery rhyme, what are girls made of? Sugar and spice and everything nice, that's what girls are made of. What are boys made of? 
snips and snails and puppy dog tails. That's what boys are made of. I had to look that boy part up. I couldn't remember it. Um, so you see disparity even in nursery rhymes there. When Art and I were talking about this earlier in the week, he mentioned that a lot of times uh, people will ask Julian if he's strong and, uh, and identify him with kind of masculine characteristics. Uh, girls, of course, are asked other questions, and they're not supposed to be strong and assertive. Some of you may have seen this. It's been circulating on Facebook uh, this week. Uh, I'm not bossy. I have skills, leadership skills, uh, understand. So um, we, uh, you know, boys that show leadership qualities or who are assertive are seen to be strong leaders. Girls are often known as bossy. Think about cartoons. There's Lucy in Peanuts. There's Margaret in um, Dennis the Menace. Um, so it's interesting how we uh, socialize even in uh, cartoons. One thing that we also know that's happening socially is um, especially girls are being encouraged to grow up faster. Uh, the age of first menstruation is about 12 and a half. That has not changed in about the last 50 years. That stayed constant. But what has changed, particularly in first world uh, countries, is that secondary sex characteristics, such as breast development and other physical changes, are beginning much earlier. Researchers speculate that this is due to the high fat content in our diets. Some people believe that it may also be a part of the hormones that uh, is in the meat that we eat. Um, so uh, this is problematic when a 10-year-old looks like she is 16. Uh, it can create um, problems with how uh, boys respond to her, problems with body image, uh, and also it creates nightmares, moms of preteens, for shopping. Um, I pulled these off of Pinterest today. These are I were identified as tween clothes for girls who are not yet teenagers but who are not, um, quote, girls anymore. Um, I would not have wanted my preteen to wear uh, any of those things, um, and my preteen would not have. We had a terrible time shopping because it was very hard to find clothes that didn't um, tend to sexualize girls at a much younger age. So um, many of you parents may be having conversation, maybe having battles about that already, about what do we get to wear to school and what can we wear to school and what's appropriate and why and why not. Um, I hope that 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 will be an important uh, part of conversation for you. This is a family photo um, of a family in Canada. The child in the middle is named Storm. Storm was born in 2011 to her two parents, Kathy Wittrick and David Stocker. As parents, they decided that they wanted to mitigate at least some of the gendered messages that children are blitzed with. They accomplished this by not really revealing the gender of their child to any but just a very few people. As you can imagine, their decision not to reveal the gender of the child unleashed a storm of controversy. In this picture, the child is four. People outside of those very few still do not know if this child is a boy or a girl. Some people applauded their decision. Others felt like it was a dangerous social experiment to conduct on a child. Others called it outright child abuse to not reveal the gender of this child. No matter how what you may think about their decision, and my daughter and I have had some really interesting conversations about it, it does make us stop and think about how automatic our socialized responses are to children. So a question that I would ask you tonight is how would you respond to Julian or Millie or Emma or Hazel or any of our children if you did not know that they were boys or girls? 
Would you ask them different questions? Uh, would you interact with them in a different way? Uh, would you dress them in different clothes? Uh, how much choice would you give them in deciding uh, what gender they felt like? Um, that's kind of scary thoughts um, as we talk about gender. So what I want us uh, to do tonight um, is to have some conversation uh, around the tables. Um, I want you to begin um, by talking about, uh, did you learn something about biology that you didn't know? Uh, something that surprised you? It might be about the intersex and kind of some of the transgendered issues. And we could talk about any one of these things in a great deal of depth. Um, did something about the way we socialize uh, our children uh, spark something in you? Uh, has that been your experience to be socialized one way or the other? Um, how will that affect conversations that you might have with your children or um, with other young people that you might have in come in contact with? So I'm just going to uh, open this up for some conversation. So just whatever sparks interest at your table. Um, talk about that for a little bit, and we'll come back together in about 10 minutes and uh, share some responses. You're only as old as you feel. Right, I'm going to bring us back together if you'll wrap up your conversations at your table. I'm going to ask that we just take a few minutes to kind of go around the room and uh, if somebody will tell us uh, where your conversation kind of gravitated and what you learned or uh, what you processed. So, um, Aaron, we'll start with your table there. Uh, uh, nominate a quick spokesperson and tell us what happened over there. So conversation of even at home, if you try to be pretty uh, gender neutral, that as soon as you go out the door, you kind of lose control over that, and it happens in society. Okay, good. And also some uh, some amazement about biology. Good. Okay. Um, we'll go to the back. S way in the back. Do you all have any, Sandy or anybody back there? I don't want to leave you guys out because I can't see you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good, an appreciation for a God is also uh, involved in the biology. Uh, again, of course, the psalm is a metaphor, but I just love the image that it gives us. Yes. Right. Good. Uh, an, an expression that uh, ha having a child who has come out uh, as gay and um, having to, d to process all that goes along with that. And uh, unfortunately, churches have done a really poor job of helping people uh, process through that. And I love your statement, we don't have to agree to be kind. So, um, you know, th I, I bet we could go around the room and everybody would have uh, a family member or a close friend that has been their experience. So we need to be talking about this and, and providing support uh, for each other. Uh, Bill and Sterling, what happened at your table? Yes, Bill uh, has raised the issue of the um, the challenge of public restrooms for people who are transgender. There was a big article in the newspaper last week about a transgendered student who uh, was having that difficulty in high school. Uh, as I was researching for this, I saw, a, wasn't really a cartoon, but it was a sketch um, of a, a young man who was obviously transgendered and uh, over the sign of for the girls' bathroom, if he went in there, he would get yelled at. If he went into the men's bathroom, he would get beaten up. So, um, so there are some significant challenges there for uh, transgendered folks who 
uh, identify with a different gender than their anatomy and are trying to figure out how to live in the world. Um, and we are, we're not doing very well at addressing that yet. Uh, one of the things that I learned in preparing for tonight um, is that uh, somebody asked, are there more uh, gay and homosexual people now than there were in the past? And researchers think that the answer to that is no, that the, the percentage of the population is pretty consistent, but that uh, because research is showing that much of that is genetic and because we are uh, advancing in how we think about that, that people are feeling more comfortable in identifying themselves as, um, as not on that binary either or, but somewhere on the spectrum. So um, we're just beginning to learn what that will mean for us uh, as society. Okay, uh, ladies uh, in the middle, um, do you have a spokesperson at your table? Uh, and it said that they talked at their table about how we teach a great deal through what we model, uh, despite what we say. Uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about this more when we talk about how do you have conversations about your children about sex and sexuality. Uh, how do you treat each other in your home? Um, if you're an adult and a child walks in on you in the bathroom, do how do you respond to that? If you uh, react, I don't want to say violently is not the word, but... If you overreact, that sends a message to children about nudity. It, um, you know, how do you respond when children walk into your bedroom when you're being intimate? All of those things model how we feel uh, about sex and sexuality. So you're absolutely right. We model much more than we say. Um, you know, and there are gender norms in that as well. Um, it, it's interesting when we have uh, traveled to Africa. Jay has always been very intentional about washing dishes. While he's there, uh, the men just kind of freak out about that. And the, the ladies really do, too, because men don't do that. So he is always very intentional about kind of trying to cross some uh, gender barriers there and model uh, a different way to look at that. So um, good. We, we modeled that in lots of ways. All right, right here in the front. reflecting on your own experience, either raising children or your own experiences. And you all are three in very different life stages, so I bet that was interesting conversation. All right, over here. Okay, as we raise our children, the relationships um, are the important things. So, well, thank you for sharing what you've talked about at your table. I hope that you have learned some new things tonight and that you'll be thinking about some things a little bit differently uh, as you leave. Once again, we, we see how complex all of this is. So a question that you may have at this point in the study is, if scripture's not real clear about this and biology's not real clear about this, uh, how in the world can we uh, make faithful decisions about what uh, healthy and uh, healthy adult sexual relationships are. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. Art and I have given you lots and lots of information over the last five or six weeks. So after a very brief introduction and kind of a, a framework about how to think about that differently than perhaps we have, uh, we're going to spend some time next week doing case studies. So when you come next week, uh, you will uh, receive on your table um, a hypothetical, modern-day um, probably not typical relationship, and we're going to ask you to, to use some of the tools that we've been talking about and some of the tools that we'll give you next week uh, to talk about those and um, see what you think about whether those are God-honoring relationships or not and why. We don't expect everybody to agree, but we do hope that we will have some very interesting and uh, healthy conversation as we talk about some very um, increasingly typical uh, relationship structures and how does do we as a church uh, think about those. 
Uh, one of the things that uh, we get asked all the time, and they were in, in our, the questions that Art and I received a lot, is what is the church's position on? Um, and we want to be very clear that there is not a tabernacle position on uh, any of this. Of course, the Catholic Church and the Episcopal Church and some other uh, groups have a position on that. Um, the Alliance of Baptists and CBF and SBC have positions on that as a free and faithful Baptist church. Uh, we do not have positions on that. So please continue to be clear that, um, that Art and I are not advocating a TBC position. We're trying to present some options and to stretch our thinking, but this uh, is in no way a prescriptive. So come next week prepared to uh, share honestly how you think about some modern uh, configurations of relationships, and we look forward uh, to continued discussions. Sterling, you want to come close us out? We've got about five minutes. I'm wondering um, if anybody has any thoughts about where we're at so far in this process that would be helpful for us to hear from any of you. Is this about what you thought it was going to be? As a pastor, one of the things that I'm always struggling with is how do we look at a group of people that we know don't see things the same way and stand on a common foundation and find a way where we can facilitate that conversation, meaning if you're having that conversation in your home, but your next door neighbor who's also, who's not really, but next door neighbor's also a church member, and they're in a radically different place, how do we raise our children together? So what is the role of the parents in the church community that don't approach this in the same direction? It's complex. Yeah, well now we can't put this on the podcast because you said that, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, no, 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 I hear you. No, I'm kidding. No. So um, we need to wrap up. Sorry, but we'll, we'll hit pause. But we got children next door that are going to be coming um, real quick. David praises God and dances on Sunday morning, right? Uh, David becomes king of United Israel, and um, that doesn't last long, the United thing. But for now, it's a good thing. And, you know, we, we began this talking about in the beginning in the garden, our natural extension is one of hands in the air praising God. To be created in the image of God means to lob our hands up in the air and say, thank you. But it is the moment that we step into fallenness that our hands immediately are taken from the air and cover over our genitalia. How do we praise God when we're so busy covering ourselves with our hands? And that's not from me. That's from Dr. John Kinney. Uh, it was a brilliant observation. But I want you to be thinking about that. It's, I'm not going to say that on Sunday morning, I don't think. But be thinking on that. And um, with that said, blessings to you. Thanks for being here. You loved every last one of you. Thanks, everybody. See you soon. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you, Tracy.